does God care about your everyday, sometimes boring life? Yes. God's numbered the hairs on your head, determined the times and places that you should live in. And if you're a Christian, he set his love on you and sent you into the world to display his love to others. Our Father in heaven cares about the ordinary. He cares about the mundane. He cares about the details we so often find the devil in. He cares about your life because all of your life belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper put it this way, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Subsequently, all of life is to be offered to God as worship. Every element of life is to be lived out in God's presence. Therefore, the people of God, those who have experienced his saving grace, are to live differently than those who do not know God. They're to live distinctively. Those who have been saved by God long to love him back. It is their duty and their desire to love him back by keeping his commandments, which reveal his character. God has given his law to Israel so that they might know how to do just that, how to love him well and how to live as his holy people. Last week we saw that uh, there are vertical and horizontal commandments within the Decalogue and that those vertical commandments which kind of stand for our individual or personal love for God correspond to the first four commandments and then that horizontal or interpersonal love for others corresponds to the second six commandments. And so we see the whole Decalogue, all of the Ten Commandments, all of God's law can be summarized in love for God and love for neighbor. If we wanted to whittle it down even further so we can remember it even more easily, we could just say love God. Because if we love God well, and we love God by being obedient to his word, if we love God well, then all these other things will follow. We'll love neighbor as a natural outworking of that love for God. And what we come to this week is Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to cover verses, verse 22 of Exodus 20 all the way through verse 19 of chapter 23. And, and it's close to 100 verses. And I'm not going to read them all because that would take 20-ish minutes in and of itself. And so a lot of times I'm going to be referring to, to verses and then just talking about them. And so you're going to have to work extra hard to listen this week. You're going to have to look down at your Bible. And if Darlene can keep up with me with the verses on the screen, maybe up there, and kind of be reading and listening at the same time. But what we'll see is that these various rules or ordinances that are found in this section of Scripture, which is commonly referred to as the Book of the Covenant, they're essentially making practical application of the Ten Commandments, and they kind of serve as as case law, if you want to think of it that way. And so we're going to consider these miscellaneous laws in four broad, very broad, categories. And think of them in terms of worship, in relation to the outcasts or the marginalized, the sanctity of life, and community. So worship, outcast, life, and community will be the categories under which we consider all 
of these laws. And this morning, it's going to be a little bit like skipping a stone across the top of water, right? You're gonna, uh, you just touch down on a verse and then come up, touch down on another one, and so on and so forth until we're done. And so uh, what we're going to do is pray, set the stage a little bit, and then we'll take a glance at each category. The main idea of this section before we pray uh, is that God's people are to live as a distinct worshiping community that is shaped by love. That's, that's the heart behind all of these laws, is that the people of God would look and live like the God that has saved them. And so with that in mind, let's pray together and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. It's often hard for contemporary people such as ourselves to uh, get our arms around some of these moral and civil and ceremonial laws that you outlined for Israel uh, way back in the day. Just pray that you would give us patience and understanding as we think through what these laws meant to the original audience as they sought to honor you with their lives and how we can make practical application of them to ourselves. Help us to find that uh, transcendent principle that applies to all of your people in all places at all times as we uh, just consider and think through your word together. So Spirit, be present with us, be our teacher, and show us your glory, your mercy, and your justice as we together consider these miscellaneous laws. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's set the stage a little bit before we get into here. Uh, the book of Exodus really comes in two parts. The first 18 chapters are all about God taking Israel out of their slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness and eventually to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the goal, the people of Israel, or the refrain of Exodus. Moses is saying to the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can serve me or worship me. And now that the people have come out of Egypt and are at Mount Sinai, they're actually able to do that. This is where they're going to become a worshiping community. This is where they're going to make offerings to God. This is where they're going to show their adoration and appreciation of the God who saved them. And so in chapter 19, what God is doing is he's coming down and he's beginning to forge this covenant with his people. And as part of that covenant, what he's going to do is he's going to ask his people in response to his love to obey his laws and to live life in accord with his holy character. By doing this, they will distinguish themselves from the nations around them. And so at this point in the narrative, what we see is God has come down on the top of Mount Sinai. He's descended in glory. The uh, people all stood around the bottom of the mountain, except for Moses, who went up and down, up and down. And at the end of 19, he's standing there with the rest of the people as God speaks to them the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to see today is God is going to start talking to Moses just one-on-one. -on -one because the people in verse 19 of chapter 20, you can read it there, uh, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God keep speaking to us any longer because if he does, we will certainly die. Remember, the whole mountain is enveloped in smoke. There is thunder, there is lightning, and it is a scary deal. The people are in the presence of a holy God, and they recognize that they are sinful. Moses responds to the people's request by telling them, okay, 
Um, but before he goes, he gives them the sage wisdom. He says, don't be afraid, essentially, in paraphrase. He says, don't be afraid, but be afraid. That's in verse 20 of chapter 20. And so, in other words, what he's telling the people is to let their fear function as a catalyst that keeps them from sin. And so, it really is kind of a funny thing when we talk about the fear of God in Scripture. Sometimes we say, well, don't be afraid of God. You know, it just means respect Him. But I think oftentimes, it, yes, we should respect God. Oftentimes it means be afraid, right? Don't, don't, don't be afraid that he, he, He's going to kill you, Moses is saying to the people. But be afraid of what sinning means. Be afraid of the consequences of your sin. Throughout the Bible, being afraid of the consequences of disobeying God is among the most helpful attitudes a believer can possibly have. He says, don't be afraid, but be afraid. And and after that uh, Jedi-esque wisdom, Moses goes back up the mountain and into God's presence to receive the rest of the Lord's instruction. And it's this instruction, these laws, that will brightly mark off Israel from the rest of the world. Their day-to-day, ordinary lives are going to look different than all of the other peoples of the earth. And the first distinguishing mark or category under which we'll consider some of these laws is worship. The people of God will be distinct in the way that they express their love for God and their worship of him. And so uh, the ordinances of, that God gives concerning worship are at the front, uh, back end of chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. And then there are some more at the end of this section in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 23. And these two things actually frame all that comes in between. They're like bookends. Uh, The theological term is an inclusio, and that's when the same word or theme serves as bookends to show you that the material in between has to do with this idea or concept that surrounds it. And what we are to understand is that All of life, all of these laws have to do with the worship of God. And what's evident right off the bat in verses 22 and 23 is that God is supreme and he is to be the people's priority. In verse 23, God reminds the people of the first two commandments, which he has just spoken by once more, calling them to worship him exclusively. Israel may not entertain any other lovers. God is to be first and foremost in their affections. It does seem that that after watching the mountain tremble with fear and being shaken with fear themselves, that the people would not need to be told, hey, don't serve other gods. But we know that they will fail to keep this command over and over and over again. But so too do we. I mean, we might not literally bow down to figurines that have been forged in fire and then are kept in our closets, but we do bow down to counterfeit gods that we've created in our own image and hidden away in the secret places of our hearts. Usually we give them non-threatening names so that we don't recognize them as idols, but what we do is we take them and we just put them up in God's place and and love them more deeply and as our priority rather than God. They go by uh, the names of money and sex and power sometimes family or career. The list goes on and on and on. We've evaluated these things before. But the point is is that when we worship our secret gods in the place of the one true God, that is idolatry. And it is as much displeasing to the Lord as was Israel's literal bowing down to golden calves and the like. 
friends, we must always guard ourselves against idolatry and aim to keep Jesus as the utmost in our affections. Continuing on, not only must God's people be exclusively devoted to him, but they must also worship him distinctively. Look at verse 24, and I'll read. An altar of the earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Douglas Stewart comments, Israel would eventually receive instructions for a far more elaborate altar to become a permanent portable part of the tabernacle. Meanwhile, however, there was a need for an altar that could be built quickly and simply so that the Israelites could commence worshiping as a united covenant community with the making of burnt and peace offerings. The Israelites here don't need to build an elaborate altar in order to worship their God. All they need to do is to hear and believe his word. And I just say believe because wrapped up in belief is this idea of obedience. Your belief determines your behavior. And so as they hear and believe God, they will build this altar and worship him in accord with his word. Very simple thing. And I think likewise, the church today, we needn't take elaborate measures to honor God in our worship. God's greatness, after all, isn't seen in gimmicks, spells, and whistles, but in the transformed lives of those who've heard and believed the gospel. God doesn't need a multi-million dollar building to look glorious. He is glorious. He's glorious and he delights in the praise of his people when they gather in his name, whether it's in mud huts or in mansions. In fact, I'd wager that more often than not, God is more honored in the mud hut than he is in the mansion. This seems in my experience that those who have nothing else besides Jesus tend to love him way more than everyone else. Quick note on the nakedness in verse 26, right? Uh, you see the priest going up there on the steps, lest his nakedness be exposed. Uh, simply put, what's going on right here is that in ancient days, people did not always wear undergarments as we do today, and they also wore those big flowing robes. And so uh, as someone would ascend the steps to the altar, uh, there was a potential risk to expose what uh, Stuart delicately labeled the genital defecatory area, which I thought was just a really funny uh, saying. But all, all of their um, private parts would be exposed to both the other worshipers and, more importantly, to the altar. And so this would be insulting to God and distracting to those who were wishing to honor him. Additionally, the modesty that's prescribed here is in direct contrast to some of the obscene religious practices of the surrounding nations and the Canaanites. And so we see once more, and we'll see over and over again, that Israel is to be unique and uniquely holy. They are to distinguish themselves as God's people in every area of their lives, especially in worship. And this theme is going to permeate the whole of this section and the whole of the law. We also see it in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 22, where we read, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal that has sex with it shall surely be put to death. 
He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Yahweh is not like other gods. And if the people that are to belong to him worship him like these false gods of other nations, then they too will be destroyed just like the other false gods will be. All three things in these verses, the occult, sex with animals, and offering, making offerings to false gods, are all contrary to the holy worship of a holy God, and it brings his holy judgment. There is no one like Yahweh, and his uniqueness, I don't think that's a word, but I'm using it, his uniqueness is to be demonstrated in the lives of his people. most important thing about this altar though, to go back to uh, where we once were, is what happened on it. The altar was the place for making sacrifices for sin. The burnt offering was an offering of atonement. We see that in Leviticus 1. It made atonement for sin. And the second offering was made for fellowship or peace. And this offering was made on a special occasion, and it symbolized being in fellowship with God. It wouldn't be consumed by fire like the burnt offering was, but was to be eaten with God as a picture of the communion that the people shared with him. Already with this altar and with the call to holiness, people is cluing us into, God is cluing us into humanity's need for forgiveness. I mean, these sacrifices don't ever have the power to remit sin. What saves those in the Old Testament is their faith in God's promise, and that promise was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Sacrifices don't remit sin, but anticipate the one whose blood would be spilt once for all sin. It was only by faith that these people were saved and forgiven, and it's only by our faith in God's promise that we are saved. Their faith looked proleptically forward to what Jesus would do, and our faith looks retroactively backwards to what Jesus has done. But all of us, anyone who is saved, anyone who has peace with God, is only ever saved by faith through grace, or by grace through faith, right? It's only by faith that we can be united to Jesus and inherit his death as our death and his life as our life. It's only by faith in Jesus that we can have our sins properly dealt with. One of the interesting things about this altar imagery uh, is that it points us to Jesus, and one of the things the author of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus is our altar. And and he goes on to elaborate, and we, we learn that Jesus is, in actuality, the burnt offering that made sacrifice for our sin. And he is the fellowship offering that reconciles us to God. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of the law of the Old Testament, all of it is pointing us to Christ. Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament. He is predicted there in the Old Testament. He comes, he's the one who's promised he comes, and then as we live as New Testament Christians, we are waiting for his return. All of the Bible is all about Jesus. We discover more of these worship distinctives of God's people in verses 28 through 31 of chapter 22. These ones make application of the third commandment. Verse 28 forbids the taking of God's name in vain. To curse God or those he's set in authority over the people is to misuse his name. Verse 29 prohibits withholding from God that which is rightfully his. 
we read, You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Um, We've dealt with this idea of giving the firstborn son to God before in Exodus 13, but we're going to deal with it uh, briefly and quickly here again. Remember, the firstborn represents the whole family, and the need for the firstborn of every family to be redeemed or bought back from God with a price reveals the need of every family to be redeemed. And so there are two reasons for this repeated emphasis on the firstborn throughout Exodus. The first is to be a reminder and a reflection of the fact that God has brought his people out of Egypt. And secondly, it's to make explicit God's claim on or his right to the firstborn. Again, the fact that every firstborn needed to be redeemed signaled to everyone in every family that a debt for sin was owed to God and that the debt could only be paid by the blood of a blemishless lamb. That was typically how the firstborn would be redeemed. A sacrifice of a blemishless lamb would be offered unto the Lord. And this is ultimately why, why we call Jesus the Lamb of God. It's not that these lambs had any intrinsic value where they could cleanse sin, but they, they anticipated the lamb that was to come. If you remember, we asked that question, how on earth can a lamb make atonement for man's sin? And the answer was a lamb can't. But these little lambs are pointing us to the one who can. Jesus, the God-man, who is infinitely perfect. He's fully God and fully man. The one who lives a perfect life in our place and who dies a perfect death in our place. That's another sermon for another time. You can check it out on our website if you'd like, if your interest has been piqued. The point of these laws, though, is to say that to count oneself as a member of God's covenant community and to withhold from him those things which belong to him is to take his name as your own in vain. It's to lie about who you are. And to to call yourself a member of God's covenant community and to live out of step with his holy character is to tell a lie to the world about who God is. It's to take his name in vain. God's people, we see, are to cheerfully give him their best and their first. Verse 31 is also related to the necessity of Israel living as a holy and distinct people, uh, to eat an animal that was ripped apart by other animals, likely a carrion or some kind of bird of prey, would mean consuming blood along with the meat, and it would make, so, it would make you ritually unclean, and that would make you, in turn, more like the Canaanites than the people of God. All of this is telling us that those claiming to be God's people take his name in vain when their lives cannot be distinguished from the lives of the godless people around them. All of these laws are aimed at cluing everyone in the world into the fact that Israel is God's holy and distinct people. See the fourth commandment applied in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 23, and this is the final bookend of worship. Here we learn that the people are to work six days and everyone, slaves, foreigners, animals, everyone is to rest and turn their attention to the Lord on the seventh day. Notice also that the land is to be worked six years and then given rest on the seventh year by being left uncultivated. It's not all the land, right? Because you're going, how on earth would all these people eat if they leave all their land uh, fallow on the seventh year? Uh, But what they would do is they would use different fields and plow them and sow them at different times so that they would rotate them, right? 
So if you had seven different fields, you would make sure that each year only one of those fields would be left fallow while the other six were still worked. Uh, Stewart says this, under the system envisioned in the law, poor people and wild animals would always have uncultivated fields in any given area in which to harvest the spontaneous crop because farmers would always be rotating fields, vineyards, and groves in and out of cultivation. God is concerned for the poor here, and he's concerned that his people rest properly and turn their attention to him. We also see that the people are required to keep these three specific feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was established to celebrate Israel's rescue from Egypt. The Feast of the Harvest, which would celebrate God's provision for his people. The Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, would celebrate God's salvation. And that these feasts together with the weekly Sabbath were corporate reminders to the people of God about what God had done for them. And they were regular opportunities for the people to renew their devotion to the Lord in response to what he has done. These feasts are are a fitting end to this section of laws. They are an excellent reminder to the Israelites that they are indeed a worshiping community which is a reality that extends to every area of life, but is most clearly seen in the ceremonies by which they worship God. And so in these ceremonies, what happens is everybody stops what they're doing and they come together to honor God as one people with one voice and with the the same action, and it makes them distinct. Other peoples didn't do this. In in the same way that uh, we're preparing to uh, celebrate the 4th of July, right? Uh, All of us live in the country all year long as Americans, and that's not always clearly perceived, but it is on the 4th of July when everybody stops what they're doing and goes to see fireworks and do barbecues or whatever it is you do on the 4th of July. We're celebrating our independence as a people, and it's clearly seen if somebody's not from this country on the 4th of July, in that ceremony they go, something is going on here. They're celebrating something. Likewise, Israel is celebrating something, and the nations around them are going, what are they celebrating with these feasts? These feasts are aimed at telling about God. Also in the church, right, when we have our celebration of communion, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are clearly distinguishing ourselves from the world around us. We're saying those that are partaking the Lord's Supper are those who have put their faith in Christ, have been baptized out of the world into the church and onto mission. They are the ones who are eating and drinking of his blood, and they are remembering his death in their place and looking forward to his return when he's going to make all things new. That's what these feasts are aimed at, making the reality of God's presence in the life of the people evident to watching eyes. I wonder if you're here and you're a Christian, is the reality of the gospel in your life made evident by your participation in a worshiping community? At the end of the day, all of these feasts ultimately teach us about Jesus. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is the provision for our sin. Jesus is our salvation. And he is the first fruits of our coming resurrection. All of the feasts are dim previews of the Lamb's Feast, which will mark the end of sorrow. The last part of verse 19, if if you've been reading along as I've been talking, is just a little weird, right? It says this, you must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What does that mean? 
in trying to nail down the original meaning has been dubbed speculative at best by a variety of commentators. And I agree, the best answer is simply that we don't know. That doesn't mean I won't offer a couple suggestions. Uh, I like these two, and I like the second more than the first. First, uh, it's suggested that this is a word about the creative order of God. It means that we should not take that which is the source of life and use it as a source of death. And secondly, and this is the one I prefer, the act was strongly associated with the occult and fertility religions. And so Israel was to distinguish themselves in their steadfast reliance upon God rather than witchcraft, wizardry, fairy dust, and these uh, odd kind of rituals, such as perhaps boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. Israel's to be different than the people around them because they serve the God who is unlike any other God. Israel's life and worship are to be offered to Yahweh alone. And it is to be just uniquely of God. I wonder if we apply the same principle. If we could say our lives and our worship are distinctly Christian. Is your worship and your living Christian? I mean, when somebody looks at your life objectively, would they go, this is a person of God? Or are you maybe perhaps so worldly that someone wouldn't be able to tell the difference between your life and the life of someone who hasn't known God as Father? God's people are to live as a worshiping community that's shaped by love, and part of this love is a love for God that is expressed in holy worship. Second distinguishing mark of God's people is their love for him as expressed in their love for outcasts or the marginalized. God's people are to love those in society who are weak and poor, just like God does. They're to care for slaves and orphans, widows, immigrants, foreigners, and the poor among them. Instructions for this are sprinkled throughout this section of Scripture. The poor are highlighted most prominently, I think, in verses 25 through 27 of chapter 22. In these verses, God forbids exploiting the poor with exorbitant interests, right? He he says, uh, if they give to you literally the shirt off of their back in pledge for a loan or something else, at the end of the day, give that item back to them. I mean, the, the rule is aimed at making sure the poor, doesn't, the poor person doesn't go, out with an, uh, go without an item that is essential to their living. Right? Typically, it would be a cloak or something that would keep them warm at night that they would sleep in. And so they're saying, hey, I need to borrow this, or I'm going to use this, and I'm going to give you my cloak and pledge for that. God's saying, give it back to them at the end of the day. They can't live without it. They need it. It's not saying don't lend or borrow, but basically, don't be like the same-day payday loan business that preys on the poor. You can also look at the the second part of verse 27. It says this, When he, that's the poor, cries to me, that's God, I will hear, for I am gracious. God hears the cries of the poor. He loves them. He's compassionate towards them. The thing about God's compassion is it always moves him to action. The last time we saw God hear someone in the book of Exodus... It was at the end of chapter 2. The people of Israel cried out in their suffering, and God 
heard and God remembered. And the next thing we see is Moses being called to deliver the people out of Egypt so that they can worship him. God's compassion is a compassion that acts. We're called to imitate his compassion in our caring for the poor. It is not enough to just feel bad for someone that's in a poor situation, that doesn't have anything, that needs help. Christian compassion is compassion that moves and acts. Widows, foreign immigrants, the New King James, which is what I'm reading from this morning, calls them strangers. Widows, foreign immigrants, and orphans are given attention in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 22. This command to care for the marginalized is rooted here. It finds its foundation in verse 21, where God says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger, foreigner, nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. The principle here is really simple. You are to love those who are in the exact same situation you were once in. The principle for us is simple. We are to love internationals, refugees, orphans, and widows because God has cared for us when we were in desperate need. When we were fatherless, he adopted us. When we were widows, he became our bridegroom. When we were strangers and foreigners to his grace, he welcomed us. When we were refugees, separated from him by our sin, he died for us so that we could enter his kingdom and enjoy his rest. As those who know such drastic and radical love, Christians need to be those who love others in drastic and radical ways. The question I I often get when I bring this up, that we're called to love for the immigrant, it's not just here in Exodus, it's throughout the Pentateuch, it's throughout the Scriptures in light of, of kind of global events, the question is always, but, but what if in welcoming refugees we welcome terrorists and we are attacked or, or even die as a result? Well, our Christian responsibility remains the same, to welcome them. Our responsibility as Christians is to be attacked and to die and to count it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15 reminds us, If you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what other fear, others fear or be disturbed, but honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. Church, we are to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses in order to follow Jesus. This means forsaking lesser loves, even things like security and safety. God has not called you to security and safety. He's called you to deny yourself and to die as you follow him. We need to forsake these things so that we might serve him and his kingdom. The cross, when he tells us to pick up the cross, it's not a a trinket that we wear around our neck. The cross is, is not a couch for your comfort. It is an instrument of torture, and it brings suffering. Following Jesus means being ready to suffer like Jesus in obedience to the word of God for the good of others and for the glory of God. God calls us 
to love the marginalized. Friends, the nations, refugees, poor and hurting people, orphans and widows, right now at this point in history, are being brought to our doorstep. God is making it easier for us to fulfill his mission to make disciples of all nations than than perhaps ever. I wonder if your heart is thrilled at this prospect or because you are self-focused and worried about earthly things rather than eternal things. This makes you angry, maybe even uncomfortable. I pray that we would set our minds on that which is eternal and lasts rather than on that which is earthly and fades. If you are a Christian, your life is God's and he can spend it however he chooses. Being a Christian means submitting yourself to that fact. Being joyful about it. What a privilege it would be to suffer so that the gospel could go forward. In chapter 21, the first 12 verses, uh, God makes clear that no one is to be mistreated. And this includes slaves. Now, to rightly understand this section, we need to jettison all of our preconceived American notions of slavery from our minds. The slavery in the Bible is not the slavery of America. They're very different. This slavery was voluntary. Involuntary slavery is forbidden in the Bible. And actually, just a few verses later in verse 16, people were often hired into the service of others, typically because of debt or an inability to find work. And becoming a slave would ensure they would have room, board, and a fair wage. Service was also temporary, which followed the pattern of creation and Sabbath. A slave would be locked in for six years of service. And then the seventh year, they were to go free. You can think of it a little bit like contract work. The truth is is that that most people at this point in history would run small family businesses and their their slaves were more like simple workers or employees that lived at the master's house. This form of slavery was also civil. Slaves could not be abused. And receiving slaves could even be seen as benevolent if the master was intentionally seeking to help someone get out of debt. Lastly, the service worked to preserve the sanctity of the family. Look at verse 3 in in chapter 21. Referring to the slave, we read, If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. Right? We're going to keep the family together. They arrive as one, they they leave as one. We're not going to split them up. We we do see a little wrinkle in this, and and the text addresses it. It says, if the master gives... uh, wife to his slave in kind of an arranged marriage situation, then the husband might have to leave alone when his terms of service are up. Dr. Marita notes, this seems unfair at first glance, but remember a few things. The female slave committed to a contract for six years of labor. She could not just up and leave if she got married before her term expired, and so the husband could do one of three things. Wait, get a good job and purchase the freedom of his wife and children, or he could commit himself to work permanently for the master. In the last case, what would happen is the husband's slave would be brought before God with a sharp object, and on the door of the house, an owl would go through the lobe of his ear. And this would symbolize that he was in a permanent covenant with this master. He would always be a servant in his house. 
think this piercing of the ear at the doorpost illustrates for us a beautiful picture about the joy of submission to a benevolent master. This is true for us as Christians. When we put our faith in Jesus, we have our metaphorical ear pierced by God's gracious owl and are bound to him and his loving authority forever. This doesn't mean you need to go get your ear pierced, by the way. I want to see Herschel or Dale with gold hoops in their ears next week. Don't, don't think it'd be a good look for you guys. As Christians, we serve one who became a slave himself so that we might become sons of God and slaves of his righteousness. That's what Paul writes in Romans 6, and Henry read it for us this morning. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. It is a happy thing to be a slave of God. Verses 7 through 11 speak about female slaves in particular, and once more, at first glance, this seems pretty harsh. Uh, But upon further review, it's actually comforting. God is offering a protection for these women. Dr. Marita writes, We don't know all the details here, but it seems that the father is not trying to get rid of his daughter, but trying to improve her prospects for marriage. See, a poor man could send his daughter to a rich home in hopes that she would be part of that family. She could marry the master or be wed to the master's son. And so the lady, this female slave, would receive protection in three ways. If it didn't work out, the family to which she was given, uh, I'm sorry, her family could ransom her out of that slavery. She'd be ransomed back. She couldn't be sold to foreigners. Secondly, if she became engaged to one of the master's sons, she was treated as a daughter and would have full rights as a free citizen. Thirdly, if the engagement ended, the man had the duty of providing food, clothing, and marital rights to her. God is making sure that these women are not abused. God loves his daughters, and he wants them to be treated lovingly and fairly. In all of these things, we see that God's people are to be distinct in their care for the marginalized, and their care for those that would be considered outcasts. The way that they show their love for God in this sense is by loving the weak. That is the second distinguishing mark. And and the third thing that is to distinguish God's people is their love for him as expressed in their respect for life. As we look at these various laws, one one of the underlying principles will be that the punishment should fit the crime. That's the meaning of verses 23 through 25 in chapter 21. You're probably familiar with it. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This principle is applied along with the sixth commandment in verses 12 through 14. And and it's just going to mean the punishment fits the crime. That's what that means. And so we see in verses 12 through 14 that these verses deal with a purposeful or accidental killing of someone so that the murderer is to pay for the life he's taking with his own life. Whereas the person that's guilty of involuntary manslaughter is able to flee to what will later be a city of refuge and have protection there until the case can be fairly adjudicated. In 21.16, we see the Eighth Commandment applied as we read, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. 
the penalty for stealing someone is death, regardless of whether or not they've already or or, are waiting to sell the person into slavery. It's death because people matter to God. They bear his image. And God will not stand for any dishonoring or devaluing of his image bearers. Friends, sadly, kidnapping and human trafficking are not things of the past. In fact, this is the second largest and fastest growing international crime. Some estimate that we have about 27 million people that serve as slaves that were kidnapped and sold into human trafficking. It's around the world. In fact, before Chelsea and I moved here from Raleigh, I don't know if it still is, it was the most prominent place in the United States for human trafficking. It's hard to believe. That's going on right underneath of our noses. It's a global problem, and it's one that the church must engage with more and pray for. Next, we see the fifth commandment applied in verses 15 and 17. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And then verse 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Uh, The word for strike here is not like a punch in the arm or some kind of outburst, but a straight up just beat down. That's what the word means. Often it means to kill. But what we see is if somebody disrespects their parents physically or just disrespects them with their words by cursing them, the punishment is death. There's not many of you here, but do you all hear that about your parents? Better respect them. The punishment should be death because God's people are to be distinguished in their high regard for life and God's design for life. In verses 18 through 32, uh, we encounter more rules that deal with physical harm. Verses 18 and 19 tell us that if someone gets into a fight and wins, they're to pay for the other person's injuries and for their loss of time. Verses 20 through 21 show us that masters could physically punish their slaves, but they were not permitted to seriously harm or kill them. If they did, they were to be tried as murderers. Verses 22 through 25 introduce us to the principle that undergirds the whole section, which is that the punishment should fit the crime and the events are cloudy at best. It's really hard to translate here. Uh, But what's clear is that if two guys are fighting and they bump into a pregnant lady and she falls down and her or her children are harmed, Uh, the consequence is to fall on whoever bumped into them for both her and her child, right? The law is ensuring that restitution will be made for both lives, for whoever is harmed. It's a life for a life, an eye for an eye. The punishment is going to fit the crime here. In the next scenario, we learn that if a slave loses an eye or is abused, he is to be released. Stewart comments, expressions like eye for an eye, were understood idiomatically to mean a penalty that hurts the person who ruins someone else's eye as much as he would be hurt if his own eye were also actually ruined. The precise penalty was left up to the judges. It might involve anything from banishment to loss of property and or property rights to punitive confinement to special financial penalties to corporal punishment to public humiliation or any combination thereof. Verses 28 through 32 concern injuries caused by animals. Everybody farmed, and so it made sense to have laws about animals. Just like today, everybody drives, and so we have to have laws about automobiles, right? Instead of having car accidents, you would have ox accidents, and so they have laws to accord with that. An animal that killed someone was to be killed. 
Furthermore, if the animal had a history of violence and killed someone, the owner could also be held responsible and declared guilty of negligent homicide. If a slave was struck and killed, the animal was killed, and the master of the slave was to be compensated for his loss of labor. The goal of all of these rulings is justice. Lots teaches us that God values life, that he wants those who destroy it or who threaten it to be rightly punished. God's people were and are to be distinctly shaped by their love of God. And part of how this love for God is expressed is in how we love and respect and care for those made in God's image. The fourth and final mark we're going to talk about this morning is to distinguish God's people is their love for him as expressed in their love for community. When people live in close proximity to one another, they're invariably going to encounter conflict. And so the ordinances that we are turning our attention to now are just going to help God's people live together in an imperfect world. In 21, 33 through 36, we discover that irresponsible action, like not covering up a pit or controlling your wild ox, has consequences. First four verses of chapter 22 show us that that some application of the Eighth Commandment, that the person who steals has to restore double. And if you catch somebody breaking into your house at night, you can kill them without being guilty. But if you catch them breaking in during the day and you still kill them, then you're going to be guilty of bloodshed. That's kind of the same way our laws are today. It makes a distinction that mirrors some of ours, our own, um, I guess, uh, jurisprudence. We also have a, a different kind of theft that we see in verse 16, which makes application of the Seventh Commandment. If a man entices a virgin, it reads, who is not his betrothed, who he's not engaged to, entices means seduces, if a man seduces a virgin who he is not engaged to and lies with her, that sleeps with her, has sex with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Uh, In this culture, you paid money to the family of the bride in order to get married. Uh, Today, we just give that money to the jewelry store and then take an engagement ring with us. And anyhow, the the point here is that in the event that some cunning young man thought to get out of paying the the bride's family by seducing her, and uh, to put it colloquially, uh, to steal the milk without paying for the cow, he, he would still be liable for the bride price. If the girl's father was resolute in his refusal to marry her to this slithering schemer, he would still have to pay the bride price and be left brideless. Engaging in premarital sex violates the purity of women and shows a blatant disregard for their worth. Among his people, God would allow no such disrespect. The seductive scoundrel who slept with a woman, not his wife, would be responsible for providing for her as a husband, if her family wished. And he would pay the bride price for her regardless. A few quick observations. These verses show us that sex has consequences and is to be enjoyed only within the context of marriage. Secondly, the family has an important role to play in marriage. And thirdly, God values purity. God values purity and we live in a culture that laughs at it. I mean, it is a preposterous thing nowadays for a couple to refuse to engage in sexual activity prior to marriage preposterous to the world, but honoring to God. It is difficult to value purity like God does 
when the culture you live in worships and defines its members by their sexual exploits. Still, despite the prevalence of fornication, and that's a biblical word for premarital sex, despite the prevalence of fornication, cohabitation, and all forms of sexual immorality, God calls his people to live lives of holiness and purity. The point here is that sexuality, like God's people, is intended to teach the world about God, about loyal and everlasting relationship between God and his people, between Christ and the church. It really is a saddening thing that so many who bear the name Christian have adopted such a worldly and small view of sex. In, verses 20, in chapter 22, verses 5 and 6, we learn that if you are negligent in the care of your animals, fire, and or fields, you will be responsible for the damage that's caused to others. Verses 7 through 15 speak of accidents as well as unfortunate and ordinary events from trust broken between neighbors and disputes over borrowed property. In each of the cases, the law is sensible. It promotes love for neighbor and respect for everybody's stuff. God's law is a gift that is given to promote unity and community. It shows his people how to live peacefully with one another. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 8 apply the ninth commandment by reminding us of the importance of truth. God's people are commanded not to gossip or take bribes, nor shall they allow the opinion of the crowd or someone's socioeconomic status to influence their judicial practices. They're to be honest. I think the most striking feature of all these laws that we've read is this one, and it is the last one. Thankfully, right? Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. I mean, this is the golden rule on display. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, we are reminded of Jesus' instruction in Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. God's people don't seek to crush or to curse their enemies, but to love them as they have been loved by Christ. As Christians, we know that we are unholy and broken people who have broken the law of God, and we deserve to be crushed and cursed for our rebellion. Thank God that he loves his enemies, and he saves them. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I want you to know that yes, your sins have earned you the wrath of God. He's holy, and unholiness threatens to destroy all of his creation. And so to protect his name, and to protect his people, and to protect you, he calls you to holy living. But because he is righteous and good, he must punish sin. But friend, he's done so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus died the death you deserve to die in your place. And he lived a perfect law, a perfect life, keeping all these laws in your place. So that by faith in him, you can move from being God's enemy to being God's family. That's what the gospel is all about. He does this by his grace when you put your faith in him. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life. Because we've been saved by the work of Christ, when we put our faith in him, we are to live lives that reflect that. We are to be a distinct people, as Israel was a distinct people, living in a way that is distinctly holy. Friends, God cares about your ordinary, everyday, sometimes boring life. And he wants it offered to him as worship. God wants his people to live as a distinct worshiping community that has been shaped by his love. I pray that here at Rockfish we would be a distinct worshiping community that has been shaped by the love of Christ. And that that love would be evident to all who come into our midst. That indeed the world would know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this was a long section and a long sermon. We pray that you would help apply it to our hearts, that you would help us to digest it and to see your glory in these ancient laws, to see your heart in the way that you have cared for your people in in a time long ago, where you're promoting justice and love and community, that you wanted the world to see your goodness through the holy living of your people. Just pray that you would help us to live this way, not as a means of earning our salvation, but in response to it. We thank you that even when we were your enemies, you died for us so that we might be reconciled to you and enjoy all the blessings of heaven and life together with you and one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.